You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome to another breakfast show. Uh, you are joined uh, by myself, Tokir Ahmed. Uh, yes, Friday morning presenter, as you all know. Um, now presenting on Thursday morning, just for this week. But uh, if you love this show, then you're going to absolutely love the Friday morning show. So do you tune into the Friday morning show. Uh, you'll you'll catch myself and Brother Valid in the studio of Voice of Islam on Friday mornings. And also uh, our Imam, Imam Jalees Khan, he will also uh, be presenting tomorrow. Um, so do tune in for that. Uh, and join with me on Thursday morning is our usual uh, Imam, um, uh, Imam Asim Hashmi. Assalamu alaikum to you. Assalamu alaikum, Brother Tukir. How are you doing? Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Very well. Very well. It's gone uh, very cold uh, now as well. You know, the, the temperatures dropped um, quite significantly. Uh, Indeed, yeah. You know, and, and it's this is that during that time where when you are leaving for work early in the morning, uh, you know, you have to maybe wait for the car to warm up for a five, exactly, yeah. ten minute warm up. You know, you have to make sure your windscreens are clear uh, before you can go ahead and uh, and start driving. Um, I, I don't know if you've tried yourself uh, those sprays, the de-icing sprays. Absolutely, yeah. What, what do you What do you think? God, I have them in the car. <laughs> <laughs> Can't survive without them. <laughs> yeah, I think they they are a real must because sometimes yeah. sometimes when you do need to head out, uh, they they really do um, stop you from uh, from uh, from uh, you know setting off uh, uh, straight away, really. Uh, because you do have to wait for the for the mirrors to, uh, you know, de-ice. Uh, I know some people. I mean, I personally am a. Uh, I, I guess I've done it myself as well. Is just get hot water and then <laughs> pour it over the screen. Got to be careful for the windows, though. <laughs> I've seen some instances on social media that uh, they're just cracking. Oh, really? You know? yeah, really? Yeah, so. Yeah. That's good. That's I haven't good. tried it myself. <laughs> I always do use the de-icer, and it always oh, works. Okay. Okay, yeah, I mean, uh, don't don't quote me on that. <laughs> 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 Putting hot water, there's something <laughs> which which I sometimes do if I don't have a DI spray. Uh, but yeah, do let us know what the weather is for for the listeners. Absolutely. So the headline says cloudy, but uh, mostly dry, cold. Today, another cold and frosty start, becoming increasingly cloudy through the morning, with occasional outbreaks of light rain. Showers likely into the afternoon along a Kent coast, windy uh, in places, feeling cold, maximum temperatures 5 degrees. Uh, tonight, um, cloud generally clearing southwards uh, through the evening with plenty of clear and dry spells to follow. A risk of frost and fog overnight with oscillating wintry showers in Kent. A minimum temperature is minus 3 degrees. So at the moment here where we are located, it is actually minus one. Wow. So it is pretty cold, but it will get better and go, will go up to five degrees uh, at our location. Perfect. Thank you so much for that. Um, and uh, as you know, the agenda of the show, what we do is we try to go 
through 20 to 30 minutes of the show where we cover the main headlines and then we go into two of the main segments that we like to discuss so uh, one of the first segments that we're going to be discussing uh, this will start at 7:30 we'll be looking at UK's first ever CRISPR treatment uh, and it could be the life-changing cure for sickle cell disease. Um, so we'll be we'll be um, looking at that segment, and uh, we do have uh, two uh, guests as well, uh, two experts who will be joining us. Uh, Professor Paul Telfer will be joining us. Professor Paul Telfer, he is a clinical head of uh, hemoglobinopathy services at the Bart's Health NHS Trust. Um, for <coughs> for the uh, coordinating center for East London and Essex in uh, sickle cell disease and East London Essex, so we'll be we'll be listening to to him, um, and also we'll be uh, listening to uh, John uh, Brewin, who is a pediatric uh, hematology consultant at King's College. Uh, hospital with the special interest in sickle cell disease. So we'll be uh, listening to uh, two experts uh, with regards to sickle cell disease. So that that, that should be uh, very interesting. Um, and the second segment that we'll be discussing today is Europe's drop in religion, a detrimental downfall. Um, another very interesting topic. And uh, for this, we'll be listening to Professor Ermitus Tim uh, Gorgian, who is a Anglican theologian who taught theology in India for seven years, and then in Oxford and St. Andrews and Exeter. So we'll be listening to him, and uh, followed by Imam Ibrahim Noonan, um, who is our uh, Imam in, uh, in Ireland. So we'll be listening to him, and we'll also be joined by Professor Ingrid Storm, who is a professor in psychology at the MF School of Theology, Religion and uh, Society in Oslo, Norway. We'll be listening to uh, Professor Ingrid. And lastly, we'll also be listening to David uh, Callinghan, who will uh, also be joining us. So we have a very packed show then uh, today, um, uh, so which is which is very good. Uh, and we do hope that the listeners do take benefit from that as well. Uh, but if any of our listeners do want to get in touch with us, if they do have anything they want to say, uh, you can call us on 0208-687-7878. That's the number to call if you do want to get in touch with us. Um, awesome. So this is my first time, actually, I think I've been presenting with you. I don't think I've ever had the uh, the privilege to present with you um so uh, i i actually wanted to same feelings for me <laughs> <laughs> i hope they're good feelings <laughs> uh so obviously you are a missionary and imam of the md muslim you're serving in uh, in true islam in the it's department the outreach and public relations department Out- outreach and public relations department uh, tell us uh, what was the sort of work that you uh, that you have in the department um, so we do uh, a lots of different work. Um, we've got uh, different um, platforms. You know, we out we reach out to our um, local sectors all around the UK. And um, for me, it's um, a lot of admin work. Um, also, other stuff. We've got two channels also. Um, True Islam, 
and also Russian religion, where we do some live shows, etc. That's very interesting. Uh, rational, so rational religion also comes under you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, under our department, yeah. Under your department. So people like Tahir Nasir who... Tahir Nasir runs the true Islam one and Umar Nasir, Dr. Umar Nasir, the both doctors and brothers, uh, he usually runs the rational religion one. Well, you know, they're they're really good and especially uh, these days as well, you have be, you've been having a lot of live sessions as well yeah. on your on your live stream. Um, and and I think it's worthwhile. So I would urge the listeners to do tune into that um, uh, on uh, on uh, True Islam on True Islam. If you search True Islam, True Islam yeah. on online, you should be able to find the details. So do check that out. Um, so uh, with regards to other news, uh, there's one uh, particular news which is uh, on on BBC News. And it is Edinburgh Zoo pandas begin last day in the spotlight. Uh, so this news reads that uh, Edinburgh Zoo visitors will be able to see its giant pandas for the final time on Thursday before they are sent back to China. Uh, so these two pandas, they arrived in Scotland uh, to huge funfair in 2011. But they are due to return in December under the terms of a 10-year loan which was extended due to the pandemic and uh, the first chi- giant panda to to live <coughs> in the UK for 17 years they touched down in a plane uh, dubbed in the FedEx Panda Express on the 4th of December 2012 and the Royal Zoological Zoo- 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 Society of Scotland which runs the zoo paid an annual fee of uh, $1 million currently about £790,000 to China for the bears. Uh, but within 12 months, the panda effect had boosted ticket sales by about 50%. And in their time in Scotland, zoo staff and veterans from China made eight attempts uh, at artificial uh, insemination between the pair. However, they failed to produce any cubs. And uh, they the last attempt was in 2021 after which the giant panda breeding program was stopped and uh, visitors can see the pandas in their enclosure until 3.30 and then uh, they will be out of sight as keepers uh, prepare the bears for the long journey home. So this is very interesting. I I didn't know that uh, there was actually uh, pandas in the UK. So it's quite remarkable actually that they they did this uh, for the first time uh, ever um, so yeah if there are um, do benefit from that as well um, uh, as I think that's something very historic any any other news um? absolutely so uh, Israel military says Gaza ceasefire will continue and the Israel military says the six day ceasefire in Gaza will continue in light of mediators efforts to continue the process of releasing hostages it was extended for a day after Hamas gave Israel a list of women and children hostages to be released on Thursday. On Wednesday evening, 10 Israeli hostages and 4 Thai citizens returned to Israeli territory after the group's release from Gaza. Uh, Israel earlier said two Russian-Israeli women were also back in Israel, having also been released on Wednesday. 
and uh, Israel prisoners uh, service says it has freed a further 30 Palestinian prisoners so this is a news from Israel and Palestine that they are releasing hostages okay thank you for that and I think uh, while we are mentioning uh, the news with regards to what's happening around the world it's important to also uh, mention uh, some of the news with regards to the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and uh, the virtual, virtual sittings His Holiness has with the members of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community around the world. Uh, listeners would know that on Friday mornings this is something which we do cover um, on on Friday mornings um, and uh, these virtual meetings are on a weekly basis of His Holiness with his members from around the world um, and a lot of the questions which are asked, um, a lot of the guidance His Holiness does give are very, uh, they're, they're very enlightening, and and I think that we can all benefit from this as well. Um, so one uh, meeting His Holiness had uh, was took place on the nineteenth of November, two thousand and twenty-three, and this was actually with a group of members from the community from Belgium. Um, and they are known as the Waqfat, you know. And uh, as as the listeners know as well, that uh, I have mentioned this on multiple occasions as well, that I do serve within uh, the community in the department called Waqf, you know. And this department uh, or this scheme itself was launched by the fourth caliph of the MD Muslim community, Azam Zat Tahir, and may Allah have mercy on him, in 1987. Um, and when he launched the scheme the the purpose of the scheme was that parents did they dedicate their unborn children for for the for the community that when they grow up when these individuals they become doctors architects when they've specialized within their own particular field then they can serve the community in various capacities um you know for for example um one we had one teacher here who who graduated as a teacher and uh, when when he wrote to the uh, the center that you know he's ready he's done his education and uh, he was uh, he was then uh, his first assignment he was sent to uh, Nigeria as a, as a teacher and uh, he was serving there for uh, for many years so we do have examples of many of these individuals as well who have now they've uh, all grown up as well and uh, they've specialized in various fields even missionaries uh, we have a lot of missionaries who were part of this scheme and uh, now that they have completed their qualifications they are serving the community in various capacities so this is this was the sitting his holiness had with the uh, with these members and uh, so they asked uh, a few questions to his holiness uh, to which his holiness gave the answer to for example uh, Kashmin Shazad, uh, she prayed that the war does not break out in the world. However, she added that if, God forbid, war does break out, then what crops should be grown after the war? And this is holiness. He gave his guidance that each region in each country, crops are cultivated according to the specific conditions unique to that area. And the same crop conditions cannot be everywhere. For example, rice cannot be grown in Europe due to its colder climate, just as some crops 
cannot grow in warmer regions. Therefore, in each region, crops are cultivated in accordance with the their specific conditions and the staple of an area is what will be grown, whether it's before or after war. And His Holiness also added that after World War II, Russia was in a devastated state and the farmers in Russia cultivated their own crops and transported them to the city. And, and uh, he further explained that the residents of the city had nothing to eat and the farmers would exchange their vegetables and crops for necessities they needed in the city. And as uh, as challenges arise, humans uh, then just adjust to them. And he added that, he emphasized that again, that in each region, crops are cultivated based on specific conditions due to that place. Um, and uh, another question uh, which was asked uh, to His Holiness was, was that was again regarding uh, the war which is taking place and Saira Ahmed she inquired about the fulfillment of the Holy Quran's promise that the Holy Land would be granted to the righteous people and she asked about the timeline for when this land would be given to the righteous and then when true peace would be established especially considering the current oppression faced by the people of Palestine and His Holiness, he added that if you read the first uh, first part of the of the, of the chapter of Surah Bani Israel within the Holy Quran, it it is also written about about this therein, and uh, you can read the commentary which explains the matter. And he says that Allah the Almighty said that the Israelites would be given the land twice, and the first time they would be granted it and they would engage in frivolous acts, rebel, uh, deviate from uh, Allah the Almighty's commands and commit oppression, and consequently they would lose the sacred land. And hence the land was again taken from them and came under the Muslim control. Then once again it was returned to them. So he says that this means that among Muslims too there will be those righteous servants of Allah the Almighty. Um, and therefore we would we should first strive to become such righteous servants of Allah the Almighty who are regarded as righteous in his sight and we should not deceive ourselves in thinking that we follow righteousness and we are very virtuous and since we recite uh, la ilaha illallah muhammad rasulullah which translates as that uh, I bear witness that there is none worthy of worship except Allah and Muhammad peace be upon him is the messenger of Allah and he says that it is our right to receive everything that Allah has promised and Allah promised to us our conditional uh, upon our good deeds and the fulfilling the rights of Allah and fulfilling the rights of his creation and striving to follow his commandments and in this age Allah the Almighty sent the promised Messiah peace be upon him the founder of the Amdimistrimity for this very purpose, to present the teachings of Islam brought by the Holy Prophet, Muhammad, peace be upon him, uh, which Muslims have forgotten and not followed correctly, and in their true light, and to remind them to act upon the true teachings of Islam. For this purpose, Allah the Almighty established a community through the promised Messiah. So this, uh, this is a very lengthy answer. I've just mentioned a portion of that. Uh, but you can find more on this as well uh, if you go on 
the Al-Hakam uh, weekly. Um, you can find uh, all of these virtual meetings that His Holiness does have with the members of the Amdi Muslim community. And you can also go on the YouTube channel on MTA News and you can find uh, all of the programs over there. Any, anything else, uh, Asama, you wanted to mention? Yes, um, so there's a news. Uh, what is COP28 in Dubai and why is it important? Um, world leaders are meeting to discuss tackling climate change at a big UN summit in Dubai. It follows a year of extreme weather events in which many climate records have been broken. So COP28 is the 28th annual United Nations climate meeting where governments will discuss how to limit and prepare for future climate change. The summit is being held in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates, UAE, from 30th of November until 12th of December. Uh, COP stands for Conference of the Parties, where the parties are the countries that signed up to the um, original UN Climate Agreement in 1992. Well, that's it from us, uh, from the news. Uh, we're just going to be taking a short break, uh, but don't go anywhere. We'll be back shortly after a small break, and we'll be going into our first segment and looking at UK's first ever CRISPR treatment um, and it could be the life-changing cure for sickle cell disease so don't go anywhere we'll be back shortly after this You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Writings of the Promised Messiah. Then arise and repent and win the pleasure of God through good works. Remember that the punishment of wrong beliefs is after death. Being a Hindu or a Christian or a Muslim will be determined on the day of judgment. But a person who goes beyond the limit and wrongdoing, transgression, disobedience, and vice, is punished in this life. Such a one cannot escape God's chastisement. So hasten to win God's pleasure, and before the dreadful day arrives, namely the day of intensity, of the plague of which the prophets have warned, make your peace with God. He is very benevolent. To the one moment of the repentance, that melts the heart. He can forgive the sins spread over 70 years. Do not say that repentance is not accepted. Remember that you cannot be saved by your deeds. It is grace that saves and not deeds. Benevolent and merciful Lord, bestow thy grace upon all of us. We are thy servants and have fallen down upon thy threshold. Amen. What is Ahmadiyyat 101? Ahmadiyyat 101 is a brand new series explaining the beliefs of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in a simple, easy to understand format. These videos are for everyone, whether you are a fellow Ahmadi or just here to fulfill your curiosity. This is your platform to learn and find out more. This series is exclusive to MTA Online One, the official YouTube channel of MTA International. So. Subscribe and turn on your notifications so you don't miss a single video. Post your questions in the comment section and we will answer them in future videos. 
This is Ahmadiyat 101, making Islam Ahmadiyat simple. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you, and welcome back to the breakfast show. Uh, you're listening to myself, Tukir, uh, Friday morning presenter, <laughs> as I mentioned earlier, presenting <coughs> for Thursday morning. So, if you enjoyed the show today, or if you're enjoying the show today. You're going to absolutely love the show on Friday morning. So I would say just move over to Friday mornings. <laughs> move over to Friday mornings. Hey, don't st- steal our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> you're you're going to enjoy it. So uh, um, it's myself and uh, Imam Asim Ashmi here in the studio. And we're looking at the first segment. We're looking at UK's first ever uh, CRISPR treatment. Uh, and it could be the life-changing cure for sickles disease. Uh, so, Asim, what's, what's the gist of, of the story, if you can uh, share with our listeners? Sure. Please. So, the gist is that in the world first, UK regulators yesterday approved a therapy that uses the gene editing technique CRISPR. Their approach treats two inherited blood disorders, including sickle cell disease, which afflicts mostly people of African ancestry by modifying a patient's blood stem cells in the lab and returning them to the patient. So uh, um, what we will discuss is that uh, what is sickle cell disease and what are the main symptoms of it. So um, a genetic disorder caused by the HPB gene mutation uh, produces abnormal hemoglobin and sickle sharpen red blood cells. Um, uh, symptoms include severe pain, crisis, um, swelling, and, uh, you know, t- infections can lead to delayed growth, organ damage, and jaundice as well. Uh, severity varies. Uh, prompt medical care is crucial. So, um, so the, uh, you know, there, are pre- uh, there were previous cures to this disease also. Um, uh, sorry, uh, 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 the question is, were there any previous cures to this disease? And the answer is that no cure currently existed uh, for sickle cell diseases. Treatments focus on managing symptoms and preventing any complications. Medications 
can help help reduce pain crisis. Uh, blood uh, transfusions may be uh, used to manage anemia. So the good news is that they have um, started uh, this uh, CRISPR treatment and because there were no cure to this uh, disease before. Uh, so how will the new CRISPR treatment work and are there any potential risks associated with this? Um, you know, y- uses this uses CRISPR-Cas9 uh, for da- targeting gene correction. Uh, unintended gene edits may occur um, and then hematoprophetic stem cells are extracted and edited also. Uh, some cells uh, may remain unedited. Um, another question is that um, is there any lifestyle link to this disease or is it purely um, hereditary? As they say you should stay well hydrated to prevent cell sickling and pain crisis. Extreme weather can trigger a sickle cell crisis in individuals should avoid such conditions. And also essential for overall health, supporting general well-being and disease management, uh, encouraging in moderation, uh, caution, you know, with activities to prevent complications and also smoking and secondhand smoke was uh, respiratory issues in individuals should refrain from this. And monitoring health is vital for early detection and intervention. Thank you so much for that, uh, Sim. Um, and we are now joined by Professor Paul Telfer. And Professor uh, Paul Telfer is a clinical uh, lead of hemoglobin nothopy services at the Bratz uh, Health NHS Trust for the uh, hemoglobin nothopy coordinating centres for East London and SL, uh, Essex sickle cell disease and East uh, East London. So good morning to you and thank you for joining us today. Good morning. So it's a, it's a very uh, interesting topic we're covering today, uh, this morning. And we wanted to ask you that what sparked your interest uh, within this field and can you give us a quick summary of what sickle cell disease actually is uh, for, for our listeners? Yes, of course. Well, thank you for inviting me onto the program. Um, I'm a blood specialist, uh, so I trained uh, in managing uh, children and adults with blood disorders. And uh, I guess I got into the uh, particular field of sickle cell and thalassemia um, through uh, my training and through my mentors um, during my training who were very interested in this field. Mm. And so I found them very inspiring. But there are many other reasons why I got interested as well. So so these are inherited blood conditions, sickle cell and thalassemia. I think you just want to talk about sickle cell today. Is that correct? Yes. 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 Um, so inherited in the sense that it's uh, the sickle cell gene is, is carried uh, in the gene. Uh, it's um, It affects um, the production of blood so that um, the the red blood cells, the hemoglobin within the red blood cells is uh, slightly altered so that um, under certain conditions, particularly when the hemoglobin loses its oxygen, then that the hemoglobin changes shape and this causes damage to the blood and this causes problems with the circulation and also problems with what we call anemia where the blood level uh, is reduced. Great, thank you for that. Mm. And and is is it is this quite common? Yes. So um, although uh, sickle cell is uh, 
um, largely restricted to certain um, uh, people from certain parts of the world, uh, uh, notably sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, uh, and to some extent also uh, India and the Indian subcontinent as well. With the uh, immigration, it's become very common uh, it, with our immigrant communities, it's become very common uh, mm. in England. And in fact, uh, sickle cell is uh, one of, uh, if not the most common inherited condition in England. And we know that from the newborn screening. So every baby now is tested for sickle cell. Mm. And we know the, the numbers who are, uh, who are born with sickle cell. And, and what exactly the is the age which are most affected by, by this? So uh, it's a lifelong condition and uh, it, it's really important to know that uh, it can affect very young children, um, um, typically not babies, but by the time you're about six months old, the baby blood uh, has been replaced with what we call adult blood or adult haemoglobin. And if you have sickle cell, uh, then the effects of the sickle cell become apparent there. So really, we can see problems developing from three to six months of age. And then uh, a variety, a whole variety of different uh, complications uh, can occur um, during um, one's life course. So it's a very devastating condition. And Absolutely. And and Professor Telfer, could you briefly describe the process through which the CRISPR treatment works? Yeah. So I think the first thing to say is that we have very uh, few treatment options for sickle cell. There are one or two. There's a drug called hydroxyurea or hydroxycarbamide. We also quite commonly give blood transfusions, but we really need better treatments and, and ideally a treatment that's going to uh, cure or control the condition in the long term because this is a lifelong condition. So um, because it's a genetic condition and it's a single gene that's affected, uh, if you are able to uh, modify the gene, then this could be the answer. This could uh, uh, cure or control the condition. And that's really been the goal of gene therapy for sickle cell uh, for many years now. But it's only now that it's really become something that's a reality. <clears throat> And uh, the, the method that uh, is, uh, has recently been approved by our light drug licensing authority, MHRA, in, uh, in uh, the UK, is a method that uses uh, what we call uh, CRISPR-Cas9, uh, which is, uh, if you like, a form of molecular scissors. And what this um, uh, very clever um, device or molecule does is to enter the uh, stem cell, the blood stem cell, and make a tiny snip uh, in a gene that's important in controlling the health of the blood in sickle cell. So that uh, once that's been done, these modified stem cells can then be returned to the patient and those stem cells can then grow up and, and produce uh, the blood for the patient. And as a result of that, the effects of the sickling are no longer apparent or, or are much better controlled. Mm -hmm. That's, that's absolutely fantastic. And I wanted to ask you, is there any symptoms uh, which um, you, even for listeners, you know, that are listening in as well, that uh, someone who does have sickle cell disease, is, is there any symptoms beforehand which can be notified that they, they, they can find out so they can go straight to the doctor? 
Uh, so symptoms of of sickle cell itself before the uh, before considering treatment. Yes. Um, so so mostly we will have diagnosed uh, sickle cell either at birth or because of, um, you know some complication that's occurred. So most uh, most people uh, have received a diagnosis and they're kind of registered in a service, um, and they know that uh, if they develop certain complications, then they need to attend uh, the service or the hospital for uh, treatment and sometimes urgent treatment. The most common complication is a, a kind of rapid onset of severe pain um, and this can be very predictable and very very disabling and, and very nasty and so quite a lot of what we do is uh, pain management to get on top of the pain as quickly and as effectively as possible but there are other complications as well and some of these can be um, uh, can, so in the long term it can affect the health of the kidneys of the heart of the lungs of the brain um, more or less any organ of the body and this is one of the reasons why we really do need to have better treatments to control it great thank you so much uh, professor and, and what well, just one last question from my side and i'll pass the mm. mic on to uh, my colleague he also has some questions he wanted to ask you um has it been proven to be an effective method for tackling uh, thalassemia and sickle cell disease? Uh, so this is the CRISPR um, gene therapy that uh, that you're asking about, is it? Uh, yes. Yes, yes. So, so the, the, these are um, uh, this. The, the, there's been clinical trials uh, with uh, this method of gene therapy uh, worldwide. The numbers are still quite small, but um, the results that are being reported now uh, are looking very, very encouraging. So, for both sickle cell and thalassemia, we haven't talked about thalassemia today, but that's another inherited blood condition that can also be treated uh, in this way. For sickle cell, the results so far are showing that for people who've had this treatment, up to three years out of treatment now, they've um, more or less um, abolished all the crisis and all the effects of the condition, and the blood levels are, are more or less normal. So it's looking very, very encouraging. Thank you very much. Uh, so, Professor, um, my question is that are there any limitations to the treatment or any harmful side effects? Yes. So the, uh, I should say that although the treatment has been licensed by our regu drug regulatory authority, it's not yet been approved for use in the NHS, in our national healthcare system. Mm -hmm. And th so there are some further hurdles to overcome. Uh, that it's, it's a complicated treatment for the patient but also for the healthcare service to deliver uh, it requires a lot of resources and I, I think that certainly in the, um, in the in the beginning the number of people who would um, be eligible and be able to uh, receive the treatment will be relatively limited um, and there will be uh, certain criteria that we'll have to consider to, um, to, to decide uh, with the patient you know uh, whether they would be suitable for the treatment or not. But I just emphasize that it's not yet available on the health service. Uh, and in fact, it's not available on, on, on any health services around the world just yet. But uh, we're hoping that over the next year or so, this going to change. I mean, yeah, that's so, so you just are basically answered my next question I was going to ask you. When mm. will it be available for the public? But yes. uh, hopefully yes. it will be available soon. Yes, but so we're we're making we're making preparations, and uh, the NHS is considering it at the moment. So, so we're hoping that it's going to be approved and available um, within the next twelve months. But um, obviously, there are um, I'm not the person who makes that decision.
Great. Uh, thank you so much, mm. Professor Paul Telfer, for joining us this morning and uh, sharing your expertise on this subject. You're welcome. Thank you. 0208687787878. That's the number to call if you do want to get in touch with us. So it is a very um very interesting topic as well and 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 Asim certainly I think both you and me uh being uh, theolo- theologians um this is not our <laughs> particular field <laughs> that we can uh, we can uh, shed light on. uh but i guess we can definitely cover the islamic perspective on this as well and when it comes to any illness you know the early prophet peace be upon him he has always insisted on prayer and uh, sadqa which means giving of charity that assist in healing of disease as well as that one solely depend on god for recovery from any type of illness and you know this actually reminds me of a of an incident uh, that we've read regarding the prophet as well that we know that the first 13 years the the prophet himself was generally muslims were heavily prosecuted yeah um and uh, this basically incident highlights how important it is to visit those brothers and sisters who are sick so there was a one particular woman in the first a uh, few years when uh, when the prophet had announced islam that whenever he would pass by a particular route she would always throw rubbish or trash out of hate um because there was a there was a new religion you know people were generally there was frustration there was anger that we you know why has someone declared this and so she continually threw rubbish uh whenever the prophet would pass by a particular route um and it was her routine to do this on a daily basis and once she wasn't there and the prophet inquired as to where that particular woman was and uh, he was told that she's actually ill uh, she's not feeling well so he went to see her and uh, she was so moved by this incident that you know i have myself shown so much hate to this man and now that i'm sick he has come and he's visited me she was so moved that uh, she had accepted islam and islam actually lays a, a huge responsibility upon muslims that whenever our brothers and sisters when they are not well then you know we should visit them as well so i think this is uh, a very important note for for the listeners as well so um, we will now listen to our second uh, um expert on this on this particular subject uh we are joined by professor john bruin who is a pediatric hemo um hematology consultant at king's college hospital with a special interest in sickle cell disease good morning to you and thank you for joining us this morning good morning um thank you for having me on the show Uh, I'd like to just clarify I'm not actually a professor yet. <laughs> okay, <laughs> <a> doctor. <laughs> okay, I I do apologize for that. That's fine. Thank you for giving um, me the uh, that's my honor though. <laughs> we we do hope and pray that you will become a professor very <laughs> soon. <laughs> <laughs> so uh Dr Dr Bruin I wanted to ask you the the new um, CRISPR treatment it involves genetic modification to treat sickle cell sickle cell and thalassemia. Do you yeah. think that it is an effective and efficient method of treatment that will uh, substantially help tackle these diseases? 
I definitely do. Um, I think it's a really exciting new curative treatment, as we've been hearing from your previous um, guests. Um, it's um, very efficient, as Professor Telfer was saying, that the, the, the patients that have gone through the trial, almost all of them have had um, completely sustained cure um, three months out, which is really exciting. Um, as to whether it's efficient, it is a complicated treatment, um, and there is um, a process for the patient to go through that is not uh, light-hearted, if you like, so they, they will need to undertake quite a significant time period commitment to go through the health system, but but then they come out of it with a with a cure, which is you know wonderful uh, thing because we don't really have curative treatments available in sickle cell disease. And and how common is this? Is is it is it uh, on the rise here in the UK? Sickle cell disease. Yeah. Um, so we have fifteen to seventeen thousand people in the UK registered oh. with sickle cell disease, and about three or four thousand with thalassemia. So it is the most common inherited genetic disorder um, mm. in in the UK and we estimate that about one in 300 births in the UK are affected by sickle cell disease so mm. it's certainly um, a significant burden in our country in other parts of the world where it's more prevalent it can reach a one in 50 births so that's a, a really big burden in parts of places like Nigeria and uh, Tanzania um, so it's it's a big problem in the UK, but it's a big problem globally as well. Absolutely, and and this is something that uh, a person is born with. So essentially, you can find out straight away that this person uh, has this disease. Is that correct? Absolutely, yeah. So in the UK, we have what's called newborn screening. So every baby that's born in a UK hospital gets a little uh, heel prick to get a um, a blood sample that is then tested and we from that we can detect um, almost immediately uh, whether they've got likely to have sickle mm. cell disease or not. Uh, we also have what we call antenatal diagnosis where we can screen the parents to see whether they have the trait. So to have the condition you need to inherit one faulty copy from your mother and one faulty copy of the gene from your father and we can detect the those who have sickle cell trait uh, through their own blood tests um, and then if there is an at-risk parent couple um, they will have if they both are sickle cell trait they will have a one in four chance of having a baby with sickle cell disease and if they wish us to we can go on and test the fetus um, through a sampling technique uh, whilst the baby is developing inside the mother uh, to give them that information as soon as possible for them. No, That's that's fantastic work that you're doing uh, Dr uh, Bruin. Um, just uh, one more question from my side and I'll pass the mic on to my colleague mm-hmm. who has some questions as well to ask. I wanted to ask, what are the other ways sickle cell is currently being treated and does CRISPR treatment hold any major advantages over them? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the most standard treatments we have in sickle cell are a very effective drug called hydroxyurea, um, which helps to increase this fetal haemoglobin, which is a different type of haemoglobin that doesn't carry the sickle cell mutation. Um, And the current practice is that that should be offered to uh, all children with SS sickle cell disease from the age of two onwards. uh, And that has a very good effect in reducing pain episodes, um, chest complications, risk of stroke, and keeping organs healthier into longer life. Um, But it's not a complete definitive treatment. 
The second most important treatment is blood transfusion, which we use when people are really sick and in hospital, but also for those who are at high risk of stroke. Um, to prevent them from having strokes, we give them blood transfusions very regularly. Um, and blood transfusion is one of the most important things that we want to increase the kind of availability of our sickle cell cohort or a very big user across the country. Um, but there is a, a mismatch between the donor pool, um, so who is giving the blood, and the sickle cell community who need the blood in terms of ethnic heritage. Um, so we really want to try and increase our uh, the number of people from diverse ethnic backgrounds who are donating blood. Um, so that's a, a little shout out to your listeners, maybe, uh, to think about that if possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the, the third thing that is available um, is that there is a curative treatment. It's, a, it's the most available thing is a sibling bone marrow transplant, which is when a sibling from the same mother and father um, is a, a what we call an HLA match. They're, they're important genetics of immunity match with the, the patient, and then they can go through a bone marrow transplant. Um, it's because of the, the way that each child has a one in four chance of being a match with their sibling. So actually, and of course, they can't have sickle cell disease themselves as well. Um, so we estimate that only 10 to 15% of people with sickle cell disease have a suitable donor available for them. So CRISPR is great because we are using the patient's own bone marrow cells to genetically modify them and give them back, which means that every patient with sickle cell will have their own do- donor available, which is themselves. So it opens the door for everyone to get a cure should they need it. So it's a real big step forward for us in that regard. Definitely. Thank you, Dr. Broom. So a question from my side is that um, I understand you have done a PhD regarding genetic risk factors for stroke in children with uh, sickle cell disease. Is there an uh, increased chance of stroke for children suffering with sickle cell? And, and if yes, what is the correlation? Yeah, unfortunately, um, uh, sickle cell disease, one of the most severe complications that can happen in childhood is a stroke. Um, so in an untreated cohort, the natural history, if you like, is that 10% of children would have a stroke by the age of 18 years of age, uh, which makes it the most common cause of stroke in children. They have something like a 500 times increased risk of stroke compared to a child who doesn't have sickle cell disease. Um, so, And it, obviously it's a really devastating complication that can have effect on their physical mobility as well as their kind of mental capacity. Uh, and have implications for the rest of their life. Um, so it's a really important thing that we detect, and that's one of the most important things that we do in our paediatric clinics, um, is we have a, a method of detecting the risk of stroke, because fortunately, or well, unfortunately, there are some changes that happen to the blood vessels um, supplying the brain in sickle cell disease um, that cause changes in the blood flow, and that's what we can detect using an ultrasound on the side of the head to look at the blood vessels and we do that once a year on every single patient with every child with sickle cell disease and by identifying those who are at high risk of stroke uh, we can put them on a transfusion program uh, again coming back to the need for regular blood transfusions um, and um, and that really significantly reduces their risk of stroke to about one percent so it's a very effective treatment and then those are the kind of patients who might be candidates for thinking about a curative treatment as well, such as CRISPR. Interesting. So, Dr. Bruven, um, what sparked your interest in pediatric uh, hematology? And also, what advice would you give for anyone looking to go into a similar field? 
So I have a probably slightly atypical route into pediatric hematology that I came through adult medicine. Um, I was always very interested in hematology because it allowed the kind of blend of science and cellular pathology with a real kind of humanity element of um, that medicine affords you. Um, and then I found a passion for sickle cell disease because the humanity element was that was very present and um, very important to ident- to kind of put more effort into something that I thought was kind of quite under underfunded and under researched and poor poor awareness. Um, and then through my PhD, I did a lot more time in pediatric sickle cell disease because my PhD was with um, a professor David Rees who does pediatric hematology. Um, and then again, I found an even stronger calling to come and um, uh, to, to, to manage the children with sickle cell disease because I think, again, when you have something like this, which is a lifelong condition, um, the biggest impact that you can have is by setting themselves them up for life and keeping them as healthy as possible through their um, younger years so that when they get into adulthood, they're in the best position to, to look after themselves and keep themselves healthy through their adult life. So it felt like the most impactful place for me to um, to put my efforts. Um, advice I would give is um, always keep your options open, always um, follow through on conversations that, that have an interesting kind of um, line in them. Um, and the people that you work with are the most important people to make sure that you've got good relationships and um, supportive um, mentors is, is, is definitely a, a really important um, aspect of your development. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. John Bruin, for joining us this morning. And we uh, wish and we pray the best of luck to you and your um, endeavors. So thank you so much for joining us. this. Thank morning. you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So that was uh, Professor, that was Dr. John Bruin, who is a pediatric hematology consultant at King's College Hospital. So thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, so it's a very, very interesting topic. And uh, as I was mentioning, that, uh, you know, when coming covering the uh, Islamic perspective of it, Islam mentions that, you know, as a Muslim, if there is someone who is unwell, then then it is a duty uh, upon us that we do visit the the sick and uh, and and help them in any way. Really, uh, there is a prayer as well, and the Prophet, peace be upon him, he also said that whoever visits a sick person for the sake of Allah, a heavenly caller will announce that may your every step be blessed and may you be rewarded. When then abode in paradise, so it's a very beautiful prayer, and uh, you know that uh, Allah, the Almighty, this is how He blesses that individual who visits um, the the sick person. Uh, so with that, uh, we're gonna close this topic, and uh, we're just going to be going into the eight o'clock news now, and uh, we'll be back after that, and we'll discuss the second topic. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. peace be upon you. And uh, welcome back to The Breakfast Show. You're joined by myself, Tukir Ahmed, and Imam Asim Ashmi here in the studio of Voice of Islam. Uh, well, if you're enjoying Thursday morning, uh, then you're going to absolutely love Friday morning. So do tune in to Friday Friday mornings um, because it's even better. <laughs> He's trying to steal our listeners. 
<laughs> so uh, yeah do do give us a call as well and if you do have any feedback let us know by calling us on 0286877878 you can tweet to us at voice of islam uk or for more information or to listen to our programs uh, you can go on our website on www.voiceofislam.co.uk so this is a uh, interesting topic that we we're, we're discussing and we do have a a big long list of uh, experts who are going to be joining uh, for this segment as well um so you know just uh, enjoy enjoy the this this uh, show um, we're going to be walking you through it so we're looking at is Europe's drop in religion a detrimental downfall and uh, for that imam asim ashmi is going to be showing us the gist of the story so um the gist is that there's a growing group of people across europe with uh, little or no religious affliction even in countries in which faith is typically at the core of their very identity as scandinavian countries and northwest europe think france and the united kingdom have been well known for their widespread secularism for years so some st- statistics do show that there is a decline in religion in europe uh, so a recent data from a peer research center survey indicates that 78% of italians still identify as catholic uh, and only 19% of italians according to istat uh, attend service at least once a week and 31% never go at all uh, some 91% of 16 to 29 years old say they have no religion followed by estonia's youth 80% sweden's 75% and uk where 70% have no religion and just 7% call themselves anglican so i think we can see from this stats that there is a huge decline you know when in way in uk you say you own 70% of the population say they have no religion absolutely and uh, you know it is a uh, pressing matter and uh, looking at the question could uh, covid have any impact of this decline so according to experts um, italy's drift away from the catholicism uh, which began at least a generation ago um Uh, was marked uh, marked uh, worsened by the covid-19 pandemic and uh, there are many causes for this growing lack of belief but research indicate that a decline in religious engagement frequently results in a lack of affiliation um on day on date uh, later on and this is because of the level of effort required uh to sustain regular religious behavior and uh, also um looking at the fact that are there any religions that are growing more than others and uh, as to why that may be so islam actually looking at the statistic islam is the world's fastest growing religion um and not just in muslim uh, majority nations 10% of all europeans are projected to be members of the muslim faith by 2050 according to the recent pew research center study the word islam literally means peace and surrender to the will of allah the creator and one of the reasons islam is spreading is its holy book the holy quran uh, which was revealed to 
which was revealed to the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, by Allah the Almighty. And it is a source of guidance and it its teaching are in agreement with human nature. And Islam is a religion revealed for the whole of mankind for for all time to come. And what's interesting is that uh, this was a, it is mentioned regarding the holy book as well, that Allah the Almighty is the one who has sent down this book and uh, he himself will be his guardians. And this is what uh, we say that the, the book that was revealed to the Prophet himself is the exact same book that we find now. And that is very remarkable. Um, so that's mentioned in in uh, in chapter Hijr, uh, verse number 15. Uh, but now we do have with us uh, our first uh, guest speaker. We are joined by Professor Emeritus Tim. Uh, good morning to you and thank you for joining us today at the Voice of Islam radio station. Yes, hello. Good morning. Uh, now, Professor Emeritus, you're a Anglican theologian who taught theology in India for seven years yes. and uh, then also in Oxford, in St. Andrews and Exeter. How, do, how yes. did you find India? Um, well, we brought our children up there and uh, we had a wonderful experience in India. Fantastic weather, right? Sorry? It's, uh, the, the weather is um, amazing. Oh, no, no, the weather's nothing. <laughs> but uh, but um, we were in the south in Madurai, in Tamil Nadu, and what nobody had told us before we went there was that this was one of the world's great cuisines. We didn't know that till we arrived. Mm. I mean, I had, I had the chance to go towards uh, the, the site of Punjab um, to see the Golden Temple there as well, but I would love to go down south um go right right down because it, it, india itself has so many languages yeah it's um it's it's very interesting so um i wanted to ask you looking at this uh, topic um that what significant elements have led to the waning of religious affiliation and engagement in europe what's, what's your opinion on this it's a very difficult question to answer, and I, there, there isn't one simple answer to it. Mm. Uh, so it's not a new thing. Uh, I mean, there's a famous poem by Matthew Arnold written in 1867, which talks about uh, the withdrawal of faith. That's, that's more than 100 years ago. And I would say uh, I would begin in the 17th century with the religious wars between Catholics and Protestants, uh, often conducted with terrible brutality. And that called into question uh, the uh, things which believers said. Uh, so they didn't behave uh, as <clears throat> their religion indicated they should. So it, 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 that, that raised skepticism about religion. That fed into the enlightenment in the 18th century but then uh, you've also got the industrial revolution um, the growth of really large cities and uh, the rise of industrial capitalism mm. uh, and uh, Marx says in the communist manifesto that 
what capitalism does uh, is uh, shake everything up. It it brings everything into question, uh, and and uh, going on through uh, after industrial capitalism, uh, you've got the finance capitalism of today, and that's one of the things I think that um, erodes religion wherever it is. Um, so there, there are enormous number of factors. Absolutely, absolutely. No, very well said. And also, um, in what what ways does the decline of religion shape the ethical principles and moral codes among Europeans? I doubt whether it does very much. So, in thinking about ethics, I want to think about a huge tree. And if you think of a great tree, then uh, it has a huge root structure. Uh, and it has tap roots, of course. But besides the tap roots, there are thousands and thousands of capillaries. Uh, and these all uh, feed the tree. Now, uh, religion is one of the tap roots. Uh, of, let's say, the, 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 the tree of ethics, but it's not the only one. And religion is not, uh, uh, it's, it's not necessarily a good. So uh, we can see in the history of religions, of all religions, that uh, they can all um, lead to appalling behavior. Um, so at the moment, we've got the uh, Gaza war going on, um, and if we read in the Hebrew Bible, we, we see uh, countless uh, calls to genocide, wipe out the people who are uh, there in Canaan, as it was then called, um, in order to settle. And uh, uh, all religions have got this, this capacity to um, call for destruction in the name of God. Uh, so religion isn't necessarily something which um, uh, augments and helps uh, human values. Uh, so amongst the capillaries, all the things which feed, which, which feed um, our ethical life, um, th- there are uh, all kinds of, of currents uh, going from way, way back, which are not necessarily religious. So yesterday night I was at a vigil for Gaza. Mm. And uh, it was a small vigil. It was in our local city. as about 60 people. I, I don't know how many of those people were religious, but, but mm. I think probably the majority were not. Um, and uh, as you know, th- uh, there have been huge marches uh, in this country yes. uh, for Gaza. 300,000 people uh, or more, the, the vast majority of them are not religious, but they 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 see that it's wicked to bomb and kill human beings. Why do they see that? Well, uh, you, you know, you'd have to trace these capillaries back uh, for uh, a thousand years to try and find out what it is which informs those attitudes. But it's not necessarily religion. Hmm. So, so you're saying that religion itself does not teach any form of violence, and if there are 
um, what we are seeing in the world nowadays, that's not the cause of religion, but that's... So religion can teach violence, unfortunately. Mm. Um, and, and I think all the religions have been guilty of that. But uh, so, so religion isn't just one thing. It's also very complex. Uh, and you've got the, the Latin tag, which says the, the corruption of the best is the worst. And you can apply that to religion. I mean, this is very interesting, though, because, um, for example, if we look at Islam, although there are certain individuals who use the label of Islam as that Islam is an extreme religion, if we look at the core teachings of Islam, Islam itself teaches peace. And this is what we see in the life of the Prophet itself, that he always taught peace so i i personally uh, when when it does come to religion i think if we look at the core teachings core teachings never teach violence but there are some certain groups which have made their own commentary of those uh, of those core teachings and uh, they've used it in the wrong reasons uh, right um i'm i'm not going to get into a into a discussion of that and uh, the only religion I know at all well is my own. Mm. And uh, in our scriptures, um, there, uh, I mean, there are very, very explicit things about loving your enemies, forgiving people. There are very explicit things about that. But there are also verses which can be used uh, to encourage people to go to war and have been used and are being used uh, for precisely that reason. So, so um, uh, religion, it doesn't rise above. It's part of the, of the complexity of the whole human situation. And uh, it doesn't differ in that respect from, from uh, other, other cultural forms. We, we have to be discerning about it. Okay, great. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Emeritus. I think we have uh, one last question my colleague wants to ask you, so um, I'm just going to pass the mic to him. Um, so, Professor, um, how does the diminishing influence of religion affect Europe's societal and you know, political fabric, uh, particularly concerning human rights, um, democracy, and yes, yes, migrating yes. Well, yeah. religious <laughs> matters? So, so uh, this is continuing what I've just said. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in actual fact, if you're concerned about democracy and human rights, uh, the most right-wing governments are the ones that threaten it most. So you will have seen that very recently we had elections in Poland, and uh, the government which was replaced was uh, nominally very religious. It was, it was supported by... Uh, religious conservatives um, but it didn't care about human rights and it didn't care about democracy uh, and uh, all over Europe uh, in Holland right now unfortunately uh, in Italy, in this country um, there is a contempt for human rights and actually a contempt for democracy which comes from uh, the right wing and if you ask, well, who's opposing that? Who's standing up for human rights? And who's, st who's standing up for democracy? Let's take, for example, Extinction Rebellion, which is the group which protests against climate change. 
they're mostly, they're not believers, most of them, there are believers amongst them, but mostly they're not. And what they're concerned about is the future of the planet, a future for their grandchildren and great-grandchildren and so on and so forth. And they're concerned uh, for the survival of all cultures. Uh, and they're, they're the ones who are really standing up for these things. Uh, and uh, many of them would be very skeptical about the claims of religion as such. So religion, uh, there are, of course, religious voices which speak up for democracy and uh, human rights, but, but they're not the center. They're not at the center. Uh, and just to come back to Gaza, um, in the calls for a ceasefire, religious voices in this country have not been at the center, apart, I would have to say, from some Jewish voices. Uh, there's been a strong Jewish bloc in the Gaza protests, uh, and um, they're very clear uh, that um, the uh, attacks on Gaza are wicked. Uh, but in terms of um, Christian support, that's been very disappointing. I think here I wanted to mention as well um, that uh, the world leader of the Hamdi Muslim community, he has been um, at the forefront uh, when when it comes to the, with what's happening with the situation. Um, and uh, in even in his uh, you know Friday sermon, he has uh been uh, he has been warning uh of the looming world war and he highlighted the complicity of the world leaders with their unjust policies criticized western media bias in the coverage of the israel palestine war so e- even even muslim leaders are there as well who are voicing their opinion on that and and I, and I think uh, professor emeritus with that uh, we will uh, thank you so much for joining yep, us this okay. morning okay thank you very much um and, and uh, we really enjoyed the discussion yep. with you uh, okay. so thank you so much thank you bye 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 so that was professor emeritus um who is an anglican theologian and who taught theology um in india for for seven years and then also in Oxford, St. Andrews and Exeter. We are now joined by Professor Ingrid Storm and Professor uh, Ingrid Storm is uh, a professor of psychology at the MF School of Theology, Religion and Society in Oslo, Norway. So thank you so much for for joining us this morning. Thank you. I'm a professor of sociology, not psychology, but... So, sorry, um, yeah. but other than that, <laughs> I, I beg your thank pardon. You. Um, uh, thank you for joining us this morning. I, I wanted to ask you, firstly, the first question is that how does the decline uh, in religion uh, involvement impact interfaith dialogue and cooperation amongst diverse religious and non-religious groups in Europe? Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, so decline in religious involvement um, hasn't um, reduced interfaith dialogue, quite the opposite. Um, and one reason for that is simply that the uh, growth of interfaith dialogue movements just happened to uh, coincide with secularization in Europe. So there's been an increase in organizations and conferences and uh, infrastructure, if you like, um, uh, amongst religious leaders and that's you know originally designed to increase tolerance uh, between participants but it's also um you know it has the 
the potential to address problems such as violent conflict or climate change. Um, but that's happened primarily uh, among the religious leaders and professionals, and it, it seems quite um, independent of the general population's beliefs and behaviours. Uh, but a second uh, reason might be that secularisation uh, takes hold. Um, when when secularisation takes hold and, and fewer people are actively uh, religious, uh, those who still are religious uh, might start to see commonalities with one another to a greater extent. Um, and some might even see uh, non-religion as a threat, uh, where, where they would previously uh, see other religions as threatening. Um, so you get alliances between religious groups of different traditions around things like protecting religious freedom, um, uh, what should be taught in schools about faith or, or, or evolution or sexuality or, or the issues that might be sensitive or controversial in more than one uh, religious tradition. Thank you for uh, that. And then, um, and then there's the third reason, which might be that um, secularization or decline in religious involvement um, it doesn't just mean that people go from religious to non-religious. It also means that a lot of the people who are religious uh, in one way or another become more open to other faiths or other ways of viewing the world. And we see this very clearly in survey research uh, when we compare trends over time. So the, per the number of people who say that there is truth in many religions has increased. Um, and it, it's particularly high uh, among younger people. Thank you. And uh, Professor Ingrid, uh how has religious change change impacted uh, social and moral values of Europeans? Well, that's a, a, a great question. So you might wonder, like with each younger generation being less religious than the ones before, um, is that a reason to expect moral decline or social degeneration? Uh, well, I did a study of this, uh, which I published a few years back, um, where I analysed data from the European Values Study. Um, which covers 48 countries uh, from uh, 1981 to 2008. Um, and I found that religion is related to moral values, um, but only some uh, moral values. Mm. Uh, so what's really changed over time and where there's a significant difference between more and less religious people uh, is on what I call uh, personal autonomy values in the paper. Uh, so these are about valuing the freedom of the individual to go against tradition, um, and it includes things like justifying abortion and justifying homosexuality. Um, but there's a second dimension, uh, self-interest values, um, which is about justifying behaviours that could harm others or are against the law, such as lying or cheating and stealing. Um, and here we see practically no difference between the religious and non-religious. Um, and also no change over time. Uh, so to summarise, there's, there's no immediate danger of societal collapse and increased individualism doesn't equate more selfishness. Um, but there's one important exception, uh, and that's uh, among people who have low confidence in state authorities, such as the police or the courts or the government, um, their religious people score significantly lower on self-interest than non-religious people. So I think that shows that secular alternatives that work and are trusted are really, really important and perhaps more important uh, in a society where uh, there's less uh, religion as a sort of moral safety net. Um, and we also find that religious faith and worship makes more difference to morality in the most religious countries, 
which makes sense because in, in order to be effective, religious norms need to be validated by a moral community of other religious people. Um, and, and there's evidence of a change in this relationship since the 1980s, so religion has become uh, less associated with moral values over time as societies have become less religious. Thank you for, so much for that, uh, Professor Ingrid. Um, just one final question um, from my colleague. Uh, so I'll just mark, pass the mic on to him. So, Professor Ingrid, um, how does the decline in religious involvement impact the personal and collective identities of Europeans, uh, particularly in concerning their sense of purpose and also direction of life? Right. So I think that question can be related to, to the previous question as mm -hmm. well. So, yeah. so clearly religion has declined in importance as a source of identity and purpose. So in most countries in Europe, I think less than 20% of the population say that religion is an important part of their life uh, when they're asked about that. So that's about the same amount as say that they pray regularly or attend services regularly, uh, and it's less for younger generations. Uh, so for, for the vast majority, their purpose and identity has to come from somewhere else. Um, and, and of course, that can come from many different sources, family, work, politics, hobbies, um, etc. But we do know that a sense of community and trust is really important both for individual well-being and for societal health and being able to you know, trust in our elected leaders, feeling safe in our neighbourhoods, feeling valued by family and friends, having social resources that you can draw on is, is vital. Um, and part of the reason for religious decline in countries with um, economic development is perhaps precisely that these other secular uh, uh, resources uh, or alternatives to religion are available for the most part. Um, so, for example, I, I did some research on religion and economic insecurity using data from the European Social Survey, uh, where it shows that increases in social welfare spending is associated with subsequent religious decline. Uh, so religion seems to play this role um, uh, primarily when uh, alternative social structures and communities are lacking in some way. Uh, and that's, you know, one of the arguments of secularization theory. So by making societies... Uh, better uh, providing social services, material resources, security, entertainment, we kind of replace some of the functions that religious institutions and communities have previously had. Um, and that makes them less relevant and, and so they decline. Um, uh, and then you might ask the question if that means that religions would, would increase again if we're faced with a crisis like, you know, climate crisis, economic collapse and so on. Um, But that's not necessarily uh, the case because religious change tends to be slow, it tends to be generational, and it tends towards uh, decline. So someone who is raised uh, religious might become a bit less religious over time if no one around them is practicing, for example. Uh, but someone who's never in their life um, believed in God uh, or prayed or attended a worship service is very unlikely to suddenly start, uh, and that is a lot of the younger generation in Europe right now. Um, thank you so much, Professor Ingrid Storm, um, Professor of Sociology at the MF uh, School of Theology, Religion and Society in Oslo, Norway. Thank you so much for joining us this morning and sharing your expertise on this subject. Thank you. Thank you. 0208687 So that was uh, Professor Ingrid Uh, we are now uh, joined by Ibrahim, Imam Ibrahim Noonan Sahib. Uh, Assalamu alaikum. Thank you for joining us this morning. Wa alaikum salam. Thank you for having me. 
are you doing uh, brother imam uh, ibrahim alhamdulillah all is good <laughs> how's your how's your morning jogs going well i'll do one after i finish with you guys <laughs> <laughs> that's good even though it's quite cold outside so but i'll do it anyway I've I've actually joined the gym now because uh, the the morning is gone so cold. I've just decided to just do it indoors. Yeah, uh, I'm contemplating the same. <laughs> <laughs> um always uh, wonderful to have you with us and we're discussing um this topic of uh you know religious decline and uh, I wanted to firstly ask you that we see current trends of people turning away from religion. although you know the figures showed that uh, it is quite the opposite when it comes to islam the the ratio is actually increasing and more and more people are joining islam what factors do you think are responsible for the, the decline in religion i think one of the beginnings of those onslaught of people leaving or turning away from religion perhaps um, not perhaps but I would say is and has been uh, from late 18 the early 19th century where you have seen you know secularism coming in and modernism etc um these were definitely definitely the the beginning factors of this uh where science took over logic rationale took over uh trying to explain uh you know trying to explain why everything is and why why everything works the way it does uh without the need of religion um even some people suggested that you don't need to you don't need a religion or a god to have morals ethics or principles and i think this has been uh, a huge area uh, his reason why uh, you've seen now i mean now it's taking hundreds of years to get to where we are right now um but that's definitely one of the reasons where people started to believe that i don't need god i don't need a religion to be a moral based person and 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 one one can understand to a point where a person would write would try to think that way that i don't need a faith a religion a system a faith system to help me be a better human being um but i believe this is part of the reason why we're seeing what we're watching right now the the other factor in my opinion um and it is definitely a factor um i can certainly understand this from myself because i come from a generation of uh, young people then uh, in ireland at that time in in the early 80s mid 80s where ireland was still very religious and uh we we always were quite conscious of the belief in god the belief in the divine we're always conscious of a of accountability for our um our our, our behavior such moral behavior um in the 1980s i still remember 1985 84 85 when 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 divorce was officially allowed in ireland which had a huge impact on then modern society uh which which then you know uh progressed to other things so i i think that the fact that god is not involved or religion is not involved in human society in uh, you know now it has a huge factor also why we see this decline 
in in people moving away from religion. Thank you for that, um, Ibrahim Imam Noonan. One uh, particular question I wanted to ask you because this was asked to the previous guest as well. And uh, he gave the answer that we asked him the question that, you know, uh, does religious religion teach violence? And uh, one of his uh, answer was that, well, if you look at some of the verses, maybe he gave the answer of the Bible that there are some verses which do, you know, some people might take it to mean that uh, it's it's a form of creating violence. But, um, you know, for example, I was highlighting to him the fact that Islam, if we look at the core teachings of Islam, Islam is a peaceful a religion and all religion essentially if we look at the core have always taught uh, taught uh, you know it, it, they are all peaceful religion so I, I wanted to ask you does uh, religion teach violence if you can also elaborate on that as well for, for our listeners as well you know I'm, I'm in a very privileged or very unique or use of privileged is better for to use position where I've I've studied both the Bible in depth and now also over the last 25, 30 years more, more going deeper into the Holy Quran. And I would disagree um, with that position of that person. Um, I don't believe when you look at the core uh, teachings of uh, any religion, mm-hmm. violence is the last thing that it teaches, either of the, either Islam or Christianity. Mm-hmm. I think what people have to accept, and this is something um, perhaps we are not understanding, is yes, if you look at the biblical accounts as an example, especially within the Old Testament, we have to accept the fact that at that time, when the time of, for example, the time of Abraham and Moses and Joshua and Elijah, all these prophets, um, they were surrounded by uh, a society or civilizations which uh, at any moment in time could have invaded them, could have tried to occupy them, could have, you know, sort of wars with them. So, of course, there was going to be an element of, uh, of, of war. Um, you know, that, that, that was going to happen. So when people look at these things in the Bible, mm. for example, and they see that, the prophet Abraham, the prophet Moses, the prophet Isaac had clashes. There were wars. There were tribal. There were tribal wars. There was all these type of wars that were coming around them. But they were doing so in defence, and this is the reality of that. So I think that comes in also in the same case with Islam. In Islam, Islam is the foundations of Islam was based upon there is no compulsion in religion. The foundations of Islam is based upon righteousness, you know, that, that to act upon righteousness, to uphold morals and principles and ethics, be conscious of a divine being, and live your life in righteousness. Um, but Islam was also surrounded by hostile empires, hostile tribes, hostile enemies that didn't want uh, Islam to exist. So there had to be an element of war. Mm. War does not necessarily um, suggest violence, that you're a violent person. War, in, in, in the case of Islam at least, um, has always been defensive. And it's the right of a human being to defend oneself, one's family, one's area, one's 
livestock, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I I think that um, in my my own research over the years, um, and you know, um, and and I did look at this in a very deep way for many years prior to accepting Islam and in the biblical account that is, and then mm-hmm. in Islam when I when I when I converted to Islam, I did look at this. It wasn't something that I just ignored, that closed my eyes to one aspect of the Quran and just focus on the other. Mm. But if I'm if if I'm going to be honest, not as a not as a person who's a Muslim now, as a person who came into Islam, Islam does not teach violence at all. Mm. Islam does not suggest the right of violence at all. Islam simply teaches the right of self-defense, the right of up- upholding the protection of one's family, one's one's people, one's nation, uh, the responsibility of that. So I don't believe at all when people say that religion is the cause of wars. I, I totally disagree with this, in my own personal opinion, um, and my own research of these things. Thank you so much for that, Imam Ibrahim Nuna. I think it was uh, very important we do um covered that uh, question as well so thank you thank you so much for answering that um imam uh, uh, asim hashmi also had some questions he wanted to ask you uh, so imam ibrahim nunan um you know uh, as we were discussing the decline of religion at the same time we are also seeing trends in increase of crime rates family break- breakups etc so do you think um, the two are linked in any way? Of course they're linked. Um, there's no doubt about that. Um, when, uh, when a society moves away from um, its, their own responsibility as a human society or as a society, um, when they move away from uh, morals, um, you know, morals, uh, having morals and, uh, and principles is a great quality to have as a human being. So if you lose that moral understanding, that moral responsibility um, to, for example, to be kind, uh, to have good behavior, um, you know, to to strengthen your relationship with, with others, um, with your neighbors and friends and, you know, people around you, etc., when you lose that ability to be patient, that ability to be uh, tolerant, then you're going to see what we're observing and have been observing for many years in society where there's a breakdown of, of more base society. And most people, for example, may not be, may not be aware of this, um, um, especially uh, within Western society, and then, and then particularly United Kingdom and Ireland and these two countries I'm mentioning for a reason, because both these countries, their uh, their common law or natural laws based upon religious teaching. It's based it's based upon moral ethics and principles, which come from a religious background. So, religion has a role to play in this. Why would a man or a woman be tolerant, other than? Uh, he or she was taught as a child by their parents and then if you go back far enough you'll find that every parent grandparents or great grandparents were who who passed down these moral qualities to their children was based upon the belief in one divine being and accountability to that one divine being so so it is definitely linked in that when when humanity 
our society moves away from God, moves away from accountability, moral accountability, then you're going to see a breakdown of society because um, I'm sure you guys are already aware that there was an, you know, an incident, uh, not one, but a few incidents in Ireland right now where we're, Dublin City was in a blaze mm-hmm. of, of, of uh, civil unrest. And that is, that is for Ireland, has never happened before, ever. And everyone in Ireland right now are in shock at this thing, at this moment in time. And the only answer to this is the breakdown of uh, moral-based society and moving away from God Almighty. This is the only reason for this. Um, and I can, I, can, I can understand this only because I lived at a time in society when I was a teenager where Ireland was a base, moral-based society. You could leave your doors open in most cases. Pe- people wouldn't go into your homes. Um, young people were very, were, were very respectful to the elders, very respectful to, in general in society. I remember those days. Um, and that was all based upon because we, 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 we believed in a God. We believed in acting upon moral, ethical teachings of, of what we were taught. So I, I do believe it is certainly connected. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Imam Ibrahim Noonan, for joining the Breakfast Show today. It was uh, great listening to you, and we hope to see you again on the Breakfast Show. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. So that was um, Imam Ibrahim Noonan, who made some really interesting points. Absolutely, and uh, especially, you know, um, the fact that he mentioned that uh, if you go back in the olden days, you know, there was uh, less cl- crime and uh, um, just generally uh, when there was more of a religious environment, mm-hmm. um, there was less, uh, you could say, I guess, uh, people were more friendly with each other. Um, and uh, I think this is a very important question to ask that, when we see that more and more people are moving away from religion, could that be a cause of now some of the issues that we're facing? You know, like for example, family issues, a lot of people going through mental issues. Could that also be a reason um, that you know it could be because people are moving away from religion? We know that during COVID nineteen, people actually uh, moved more closer to religion you know we we had a lot of uh people coming towards religion and just sort of uh praying really because it was such a vulnerable stage i think for everyone that uh it, it was it was a moment where i think people were uh just praying and just uh, focusing more towards religion but uh, let, let's let's get uh, more on this we are joined by david Callingham. Uh, Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you, and thank you for joining us this morning. Assalamualaikum, yeah, good to be with you. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you. Um, so I wanted to ask you that uh, we see current trends of people turning away from religion. What factors do you think are responsible for this change? Well, I, th- I don't think it's um, if we're talking about the UK. Um, and mm. I think it's probably something that affects other parts of Europe as well. Yes. Um, is that, and it's not a new thing, it's, it's a trend that's been going on for some time, um, for, for a good number of years, um, is, is people are turning away from religion. 
Um, and I think the the fact that um, their quality of life in terms of materialism is so much better. Um, there are so many other distractions and motivations that can take them away from their faith. Um, that they're preoccupied with these things. Um, I mean, when I go out sometimes and I see people, the roads are so busy and people are going here, there and everywhere and you think, um, where, where's everybody going? You know, what, what, what are they up to? Um, and I think the answer probably is that they're just trying to um, increase their materialist, materialistic um, standards. So they're looking to, to um, achieve new things in terms of um, buying new things for their house or um, upgrading their car or, or things along these lines. And, and so I think that takes them away from their faith. Um, and, and they just don't have the time to think about it. Or they don't want, and they don't want to make the time to think about it either. Thank you for that. And uh, another question I wanted to ask you is often, quite often, when we uh, when we talk on the issue of the Islamic Sharia, usually a lot of the times when uh, this is being mentioned amongst the European public, it leads a lot of people uh, towards anxiety. Just the name of Islamic. Sharia. Should Europeans really be afraid of the Islamic Sharia? No, of course not. No, no, they don't need to be afraid of it. Um, um, I think it, I think it's a misunderstanding, um, and I think there are some um, uh, fears uh, uh, about what Sharia is, and they think it's some kind of draconian uh, system of law that would be brought down on their heads. If it was um, brought in um, and their lives would be turned upside down and they, all their liberties would be restricted um, and there would be very severe punishments for um, uh, breaking the law. And I think that um, it's based on a misunderstanding and it's based on um, an ignorance really of what Sharia is um, and what Sharia could actually bring to their lives. Um, and I think that's... Um, I think it's an ignorance and it's a lack of education because I think if they if they were to hear more about what Sharia is um, and what Sharia can bring, then it would open their eyes um, and they would be able to see much more clearly that it isn't anything to fear. Um, and I think that um, that would help uh, make us a, a much more harmonious society, I think, particularly in Europe if people were to to have a greater understanding of what Sharia law was. Thank you. And I, I just wanted to um, ask as well that if you could also mention about your journey towards Islam as well. Um, how how did you find it or what was that change that you found uh, within Islam that uh, you thought that, you know, this, this is really important? Well, I think... It, it, for me, and, and, and I can only talk from my own personal journey, my only personal point of view, is that it brought um, a clarity and a, and a sense of peace. Mm. So for me, um, this was in my 20s that I actually converted. Um, so it's 30 years ago now that I actually um, made this step. Um, and never once have I regretted it. And because it's brought me a, a, a peace, a sense of peace, a peace of mind, um, and a clarity about what the world is and um, 
what the meaning of our existence is. And I think up to that point, probably I had some faith. Um, I had a come, I'd come from a Christian background, but it was all a bit blurry, um, a bit um, uh, vague. And I think that um, I, I, I lacked um, a real insight into what uh, what a God was, uh, what a God is. Um, and it was once I had my eyes opened to what Almighty Allah is um, and what he can do and mm-hmm. what he does do, um, that it really made my life, uh, it lifted me up into a new place, um, took me out of this confusion, took me somewhere where I'd never been before um, and gave me a new strength um, and a new sense of purpose. Fantastic. Fantastic. And I, and I think we can squeeze one more question in before we do let you go as well. I, I wanted to ask you, David, is that do you think that uh, now that we see the, that there is a decline within religion as well, more and more people are moving away from religion, do you think that mm-hmm. is also one of the cause of a lot of the issues that we are facing nowadays? You know, people have there's, uh, marital issues, you know, people have a lot of mental health problems as well. Do you think this is also one of the reasons as well that people are moving away from religion, then uh, this is also one cause of this unrest? I, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. I'm not an expert on uh, on those things, but um, uh, I think if if people who are finding difficulties in their lives, you mentioned mental health problems or marital problems, then I think that uh, having a faith, um, any faith really, um, can help um, in terms of giving you some um, some uh, support. Uh, at a time when you really need it. So if you know that Almighty Allah is there for you, then that can help for sure. Um, when maybe you're feeling uh, there isn't enough support or help for you um, and life seems maybe a bit chaotic um, and you feel out of control, um, which I think uh, many people probably are feeling, um, uh, and, and it affects a lot of people at different points in their lives, then a faith can come in and give you some uh, relaxation, if you like, in your mind, a sense of um, knowing that um, things will be all right. You will come through this difficult period, and Almighty Allah will be there for you. Um, Just reach out to him, and he will be able to give you the support and help you need. So I think that um, a lack of faith is something that um, will mean that people probably struggle more than they need to. Great. Thank you so much, uh, David uh, Callingan, for joining us this morning. Um, I, I don't believe but we have uh, talked before, but it was a great, great uh, no. privilege to have you on and uh, listen to you as well this morning. Thank you, and thank you for the invitation, and it was a pleasure to be on. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. So uh, we are uh, drawing to a close um, to the program as well. But it's you know it's it's been a uh, really good uh, show I think, uh, especially listening to David as well. You know you you see that uh, how um, you know someone who was looking for Allah the Almighty someone who was looking for God or who was looking for peace 
he found it through islam um he found it he, he found a way to you know that communion with allah the almighty and uh this goes in line with the friday sermon we were listening uh to his holiness as well last week uh, he narrated a lot of incidents of members of the community who have accepted islam and uh, i know that one incident he mentioned from uh, one of the islands uh i believe it was uh, marshall islands or micronesia one of the islands and uh, one of the um person who accepted islam he he said that uh when i had accepted islam allah the almighty he started listening to my prayers whenever i prayed to him uh more and more of my prayers became accepted and uh, th- this is what we see within the ahmadiyya muslim community as well that you know there are countless incidents um where you find uh, you know people are coming into uh the fold of 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 islam really and accepting ahmadiyyat and uh, a lot of a lot of these members then narrate their incident as well and how allah the almighty guided them um and uh, the, you know uh, quite often within uh, within locally as well asim we do um uh, distribute different uh, flyers as well we invite people to the mosque as well so it's quite interesting to get an overview of what the public think or of this topic as well um and and i guess uh, this brings us a close to the show uh we wanted to thank the producer salia ahmed for a great production and her team as well um amtul kafi and also um to the researchers taiba tahir saba ijaz uh, mala mahmood sofia noshin ahmed sarish arif Uh, so thank you to the whole team for a great production this morning. Uh, we've certainly enjoyed uh, the show. Um, I I also wanted to thank the tech team for their great work, uh, brother Ar- Arman uh, in the uh, in the tech team. Thank you so much for uh, for a great show and also to you Asim for uh, for for this uh, <laughs> for for joining for coming on this morning. Ashraf, thank you for coming. today and um, joining me it was a privilege <laughs> and and i think lastly i would mention to the listeners as well if you've enjoyed thursday morning then you're going to absolutely love friday morning so do <laughs> do, do stay tuned in for friday morning but make well. sure you don't leave the thursday team <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so with that um, you know i i would uh, mention to the listeners as well if they do have any feedback then uh, do mention to us you can uh, tweet to us at voice of islam uk or you can even go on our website on www.voiceofislamuk until next time assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh